This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton. Thank you for joining me. I'm here from noon until 2 this afternoon. You know, it was on this day, December 6th in 1989, that a man motivated by a hatred of feminists shot and killed 14 female students and injured 13 others at Ecole Polytechnique, a Montreal engineering school. Joining me today to talk about this, to remember, and to talk about what we all should remember about that day, but also use as we move forward, is Natalie Provo, who was shot four times when that gunman entered her school. Natalie has become a spokesperson for gun control group Polly Sousuvian, Polly Remembers, and she calls what happened 23 years ago today a femicide. Natalie, thanks so much for joining me today. Good, good afternoon. <laughs> so I, I'm sure this is, is such an emotional day for you, a, a day of remembrance. Can you just take a few minutes to share with our listeners your remembrance of that day, of what happened? Oh, uh, I don't know if your auditors know that I've been shot in Polytechnique uh, four times, but that day for me is... Uh, it just is a very important stone mark of my life, and um, I, 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 today it, it it's a day I I will never forget, and it's part of what I am now. So it's it's a very important day. Can you tell me where you were and and what exactly happened? I was in the first class where the the shooter began his massacre. And uh, he asked us to, he, he asked the, 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 the girls to stay in a corner of the classroom and just ask the boys to leave. And sorry, I felt so young at that time. So I, I'm speaking about boys and girls. That's the way I see what we were. And, um, and then uh, I was one who asked him, why, what's happening? Why, why are we here? And he told us that he was against feminist and that's why we were there in front of him what what gave you the courage to speak up to him innocence i think uh at that time i don't think i i fully realized what was happening and the danger of it all uh i've never seen a weapon in all my life uh and i thought that my world was a very peaceful and quiet one so i think it was from my innocence that I took the, the capacity to uh, to speak with him. And uh, as you said, you were shot four times. Tell us about what, what transpired after the shooting. I've, I'm, I'm a, an extraordinary lucky one because even if I had, uh, I was wounded at both legs, my foot and my forehead, forehead um, Nothing um, vital was touched, and that was a miracle from my point of view. And uh, nothing permanent, uh, or not permanent, but there's nothing that really handicapped me for my own life, uh, my whole life. So I still can feel some difficulties with my muscles, but nothing really important. 
So you've lar- you largely recovered from your physical injuries, yes. but but tell us about the other parts, the more important things around your mental health and and the the cause that has become your life since that day in 1989. Oh, uh, that's a much more difficult uh, aspect to talk about because even to that day, I I know that I've recovered, that I did a lot, but I I don't think I can explain. Uh, the way the way which uh, the way I took to recover um, or to globally recover because I think I will always be uh, wounded in, in in on my in my soul. You cannot go through that without being marked for life. Um, my strategy to recover first was to finish my bachelor degree as an engineer and I even did a master degree and also I began a career as an engineer. That was um, vital for me. I had to do that. I think that was my first goal is to prove that he didn't fulfill in stopping me. Uh, he, he didn't succeed at stopping me as he did for my classmates. So that was my first strategy to recover. Uh, but then years after, I realized that I had to take time for myself and, and then my family because I was a mother uh, after five years. And, but being a mother helped me. I think that just having a quiet life and raising my child and working as everyone, it helped me find my own way, find my own uh, answers to those awful questions that are ways, why, why, why did it happen? Why is that uh, happening in the world at all? And what can I do with it? And it's only at, uh, around the 20th anniversary that I was able to, uh, to be a spokesperson and to have a real contribution. And having a contribution in a, is another way to bear witness uh, for me. That's and, and I do want to talk about your contribution. I'm, I'm curious if, if I might ask, what, what conversation do you have with? You have one child? Four, four, I have four children. You have four children. What conversations do you have with your children about this? Oh, uh, when they are very, very young, they know. First of all, I have, um, I think it's scars on my legs so they can see it. Right. Um, so uh, it, 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 I explained to them, and even with noises, you know, maybe sometime when the child just um, drops something and it makes a very big loud, a, a very big noise, uh, um, I have a reaction, an, a, a, an emotional reaction to big noises because of uh, the fire shooting I, it, when it happened. Of course. So I had to explain them my reactions and why I became angry with those noises. So they know they know what happened to their mother, um, but uh, they they didn't they, they didn't they were not fully aware aware of what was it, what was polytechnic, uh, what is a femicide, why was it a femicide, and. But the um, the fact that their mother was public even right after they didn't know that, and one day, uh, a year or two before the 20th anniversary uh, of the commemoration, um, my oldest son 
told me, but m- m- maybe you told some because there was a TV show regarding what happened and I wasn't there. And my son told me, but you'd never told me, Mama, everything. So please do. And that's what brings me uh, to being an advocate and to bear witness publicly since the 20th anniversary, much more consistently and regularly. Natalie Provo is a survivor of December 6th shooting at Polytechnique Ecole. You have gone on now to become a gun control advocate. Just your thoughts on where we are as a nation around gun control and the discussion that's that's taking place? Oh, you know, uh, evolution is not a, a, a straight way forward. Uh, so we, we, we went back and forth during the, the, those 33 years. Um, we feel close to something really important. The first request, and I was with them, the first request of Polytechnic students, families of victims, teachers, and even Quebec and Canadian societies was to remove from our streets those kinds of weapons, like what was used in Polytechnic, um, like what we call now assault-style weapons. And with um, Bill C-21, we are close to a real ban of these kind of weapons. Um, I'm a bit sad of all the confusion that's going on right now between hunters and those in favor of gun control. But Natalie, hope- can I can I just uh, are you able to to hold on for a break with us? I know it's a busy day and a, and a difficult day for you. Yes, are you able I to hang on? I have some minutes with you. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Thank you, Natalie Provo. We're going to take a break and come back uh, and speak further with her. It's Deb Hutton. This is News Talk today. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host today for News Talk Today. December 6, 1989, a gunman walked into a Polytechnique, Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal, a Montreal engineering school, killed uh, thir- 14 female students and injured 13 others. We have been chatting uh, just in the last few minutes with Natalie Provo, who was shot four times when that gunman entered, and she has agreed to stay on with us. Uh, Tony, do we have Natalie? Um, she was sharing such a powerful uh, account of what uh, she went through that day. She actually found the courage to speak to the gunman to ask what it was that he was doing there. She recounted how, in her view, this is fully a femicide because that gunman said to her about women and asked the men, the, the as she says, the boys of her class to leave and kept the girls behind. Natalie is now a mother, something that has continued to keep her going, keep her moving forward. And she shared with us a little bit about talking with her four children, uh, talking to them about the scars and about the fact that they, uh, 
viewed a movie that she hadn't spoken to them about with all the details. Something so, so, so difficult uh, to imagine. And Natalie, we thank you for staying on the line. I know this is both a a difficult but busy day for you. But we were just starting to talk about uh, your more recent cause that you said you embarked on after the 20th anniversary of December 6th shooting. And that's your efforts on gun control. Tell us a little bit about that. You said you've been concerned about the confusion in the last number of days and weeks around the government's Bill C-21. I'm really aware because for the first time in more than 30 years, so in 33 years, we have now a bill that has been tabled that includes a strong definition regarding assault-style weapons. Um, But there's so many uh, misinformation, I don't know if it's the word, but uh, that nobody understands clearly what it is about. And we are now going to have to hear to experts to be sure that we have a comprehensive uh, definition of assault-style weapons, but that that definition uh, doesn't include um, hunting rifle. What I understand from from our government is that any reasonable hunting rifle should remain accessible to those who like to hunt. Um, but we want to remove from our streets assault-style weapons, and that request was the first request of uh, the, those who were touched by uh, the uh, polytechnic femicide uh, in 1989. In that regard, uh, some of the confusion, some of the controversy in the last number of days involves uh, the star goalie for the Montreal Canadiens, Carrie Price. Your thoughts on Carrie's role in this discussion of gun control? Oh, I, from my point of view, Carrie Price is somebody that is a kind of symbol for Canadians because he was such a successful uh, goalie, but also because one day he was able to express that he was having, uh, I think it was mental health issue. And people find him very strong to be able to say it and to admit publicly that he had those kind of issues. So that's very uncomfortable for me to react on his position. But what I can say is that I understand that he associates himself with, I don't know exactly the acronym, but it's a group who's about the right for guns. But in Canada, we don't want a right for guns. It's a privilege. And anyone who wants to use weapons must be at, must uh, deserve this privilege. And we want to keep it that way. And that's where I'm afraid, because in the United States, where honing a weapon is a right, they have very broad social issues with, uh, with guns and with a massacre that I feel it's like an epidemic, uh, pandemic. So I hope people will realize and will maintain the view in Canada that what we want is a society when we're owning a gun and using a gun is a privilege. And that 
we will stay there. And that's where I'm sad of the association between Carrie Price and uh, this group. Natalie, were you offended by the timing of Price's comments so close to the December 6th anniversary? I'm sad, and I'm also sad that uh, he's not, he doesn't seem, uh, oh, that's his own intention, and I don't want to go there. But we have to recognize that the debate regarding a bill, uh, the, the discussion regarding Bill uh, C29 uh, in commission is in committee right now. So it, it, the, the debate is when the discussion is going on in the committee. So I cannot be, uh, I, I can understand the timing of, of that, uh, that, of his concern. Natalie Provo, um, thank you so much for sharing some time with us on this this incredibly important day for you, this incredibly emotional day for you. I, I know our listeners are finding what you've said so powerful, so generous, not only in your time, but in your commentary. And we thank you and we wish you the very best. And I really hope that together we'll be able to build a safer Canada. That's my goal. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. That is uh, such such an amazing uh, discussion, uh, such an outlook for a woman who was the victim 23 years ago of a gunman who clearly was out to kill women. 1-855-633-1010. Curious to get your thoughts on this discussion I had with Natalie. Your thoughts on her, I think, quite generous take on Carrie Price's role in gun control and in his comments. For those who uh, haven't perhaps heard the news in the last little while, he has in fact done a reversal and just earlier today said he did in fact know about the 1989 shooting at a Cole Polytechnique. one 1010 I am curious to know, uh, as I said, how you feel about Natalie's interview this many years later about her, what I see to be a very pragmatic approach to gun control. I was uh, pleasantly surprised to hear her talk about the fact that we need to make sure that we are banning assault rifles on our streets without inhibiting a legal law-abiding gun owner's right to hunt. one 1010. I, I will say uh, we, we started the show off today with our, our discussion for Natalie and it, it gives a different tone to the afternoon uh, because of her such powerful commentary around what happened that day, around how she felt, around the discussions she has had with her children on this matter. So I am curious to hear from our listeners. Let's start with uh, Dylan in Ottawa. Dylan, what, what's your thought after hearing Natalie? Well, I mean, you know, it must, I can't imagine uh, the horror of, uh, of, uh, that those women went through uh, at the time and uh, must, have been, must have been terrible. But um, I don't think all these years later, you know, we should be penalizing legal gun owners uh, for, for what's happened in, in some other um, terrible cases. I mean, uh, this is a slippery slope that a lot of people warned about where what they, they started talking about just assault rifles. But now, <clears throat> as we see, uh, they're now extending it to um, uh, firearms that can be technically uh, converted into um, semi-automatic. So uh, this is what people were warning about for a long time. It's, it's wrong. People shouldn't be penalized for that sort of thing. But, but not only that, when it comes to the polytechnique thing, 
I just wanted to mention, because there's a lot of misinformation in all these decades that has gone on about that, and that's that the killer, okay, his real name, people know him as Pierre Lapointe, but his real name was actually Gamil Garbi, and a lot of people don't know that. He was, uh, he was the son of Algerian Muslim immigrants. And so if we want to talk about uh, keeping people safe, it goes beyond just the, 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 the whole issue of guns. Okay, Dylan, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to let you go. We are up against the clock. And I do apologize, we have a number of callers who uh, we are not going to get to. Coming up after the break, Rachel Ayalo, who is the parliamentary reporter with CTV National News, is going to let us know about what has happened in Ottawa this morning on the public account side. They knew that that would result in um, excess vaccines or surplus vaccines being available, which is why there was a commitment to make donations. But there again, so many countries were trying to donate and that market saturated, resulting in the, in the Canadian government not being as successful as they could. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. That was the voice of Canada's Auditor General, Karen Hogan, who this morning uh, released her report, largely talking about the federal government's uh, response and actions around COVID-19. Joining us to break it all down for us is Rachel Ayala, who is the Senior Digital Parliamentary Reporter with CTV National News. Welcome to News Talk Today, Rachel. Hey, good afternoon. So a couple of big buckets here, I think, one around uh, the COVID financial aid and one around the vaccines. But let's start with the vaccinations. What did the auditor find in her report? So today we learned that while the uh, procurement department did a very good job in proactively signing all of these contracts and making sure that once vaccines were authorized, Canada had obviously more than enough supply. But Deb, what really ended up happening was once those excess doses came into Canada and the rollout was what it was, the government kind of fell short when it came to managing its overstock supply. So this was partly due to data sharing issues uh, between the federal government and the provincial government when it came to uh, the inventory, what was set to expire, um, and as well looking at the systems they were using to make sure that things were moving along. So we are now in a place where an estimated 32 million doses are set to expire by the end of the year. This is partly because the donations that they were promising haven't really happened, largely because a lot of countries were ahead of Canada in donating them across the world. Uh, And so now Canada is stuck with a surplus of doses. We paid approximately $30 per one uh, that could be going to waste because of PHAC's inability to you know, probably see those doses get out across the country and beyond. Yeah, and, and Rachel, you broke down some of those uh, numbers uh, just after the auditor leveled her report. A billion dollars is the price tag for those 32 million doses that, as you said, by the end of the year, in the next couple of weeks, may well expire. That's a big ticket number. It, it definitely is, and it's one of those... She was trying to walk the fine line today, Deb, I think, of... Obviously, in hindsight, um, the government was right to make all of these deals and acknowledge that we could be getting a surplus because I think it would be better to have more vaccines than not enough. However, there should have been more done to see that 
Canadians' dollars, the money we put towards buying these vaccines, wasn't wasted. Uh, and certainly there is some blame for the provinces on this as well in the number of doses they have in their stockpiles and they are managing. But kind of compounding this is something that nobody could have predicted, which is the uh, evolution of the virus, getting variants and then variant-specific vaccines. So now, in addition to kind of the stockpile of what we, I guess we could call the old version, um, there are now newer uh, bivalent doses that are getting prioritized, obviously, because they're targeting newer variants. So it's a bit of a tricky situation, uh, and the government is now being called to see as best as they can that these doses don't just get tossed into the garbage or uh, otherwise wasted, but they really only have three weeks, so it's a, it's a tall task. Yeah, I mean, you broke the numbers down quite well, as I said, Rachel, in your article. December 2020 to May 2022, so just a number of months ago, we paid for 169 million doses, and of those, only 84 million, so less than half, were actually administered, which means we had roughly half plus unused, and 50 million of those deemed surplus. It's quite a big overstep, is it not? Well, when it comes to, they had to kind of put all of their eggs into the various vaccine procurement baskets and uh, were hopeful, but probably didn't think that six of the seven uh, vaccine procurement contracts that they signed would actually come to fruition. Uh, So in context, it was, I think, about 82% of Canadians were able to be fully vaccinated with that 84 or so million supply. Uh, But certainly Canada was on the hook for more than we needed. And that was why that prioritization was made uh, to see those excess doses donated, but what ended up happening in part because of their inability to track the proper expiration dates, for example, uh, a chunk of those still are sitting there, a chunk of those were wasted and just were expired by the time that we could get them out. Uh, so certainly it is, um, it's quite a lot left over. Uh, but at, at this point, I think what we're expecting to hear from the government when they come out to react shortly um, is that we we did our best with what we had in terms of trying to get as many doses into Canada as possible. But certainly there is going to be pressure now on the public health agency to improve its data uh, tracking system, something the AG has called them out on before um, to ensure that going forward, we're not in a situation where we're spending a billion dollars of money that just goes to waste on vaccines that didn't get into Canadians' arms. Yeah, I'm speaking with Rachel Ayala, who is the senior digital parliamentary reporter with CTV National News. Having highlighted the numbers that I just did from your report, Rachel, I, I will say as a just as a Canadian, uh, I, I would rather the government brought us more rather than less. Uh, you alluded to the fact that the Auditor General sort of walked a bit of a line because this is after the fact. And, and I recall in the early days, most of us were criticizing the government for not having moved quickly enough to secure vaccines. So uh, as much as I'm the last person to, to applaud wasting money, I'm glad we at least had access to those vaccines. Certainly. And it's one of those issues of while we couldn't donate the doses, that's because other countries stepped up. So in the broader global sense, You know, shots did get in arms where needed, and Canada did try to make efforts there. Uh, But I certainly think that going forward, there's a big lesson here to be learned of making sure the provinces talk to the federal government and are realistic about how many doses they think they're going to need. And then going into these advanced contracts with vaccine manufacturers, largely needed because we did not have the capacity to make these COVID vaccines here in Canada, uh, that the, the country and the federal government will have a better sense of really what they need to be going in and asking for and how much of a risk they're willing to take to kind of 
go all in on multiple options, not knowing what was going to end up coming through. Uh, just in the last couple of minutes we have left, Rachel, the, the other sort of basket of things that the uh, auditor spoke about has to uh, do with the financial payments uh, to Canadians during that time. What did she find there in terms of overpayments and waste? So $4.6 billion went to Canadians in overpayments that they were not eligible to receive. So overall, the Auditor General found that between CERB, the wage subsidy, several other COVID benefits, uh, $211 billion were spent. So that $4.6 billion is a portion of that that they think or they know went at the door to people who shouldn't have gotten it. As well, she flagged, there is another over $27 billion in payments both to individuals and to businesses that she's suggesting probably needs a bit more examining. The complicating factor here is that there is a limited runway left for the federal government to try to make these clawbacks and get these overpayments uh, repaid. And so we are looking at quite a significant loss, billions of dollars, uh, that the government gave out to Canadians in advance because they didn't check their eligibility. This was kind of their attempt to make sure as much money got out the door as quickly as possible. But in doing that, they didn't do all the front-end verification that now the AG is saying they probably should have. And why is our time limited to recoup this money? So there are obligations in legislation for the government to, within a certain amount of time, uh, go back to Canadians and say, you know, sorry, we made a mistake. Uh, We please need that money back. And we did see uh, lately uh, letters being sent out to some third recipients letting them know that they were overpaid. And that is where the money has been recouped so far. So about $2.3 billion of that 4.6 has come back. Uh, and that's just because of Canadians voluntarily through the CRA making sure that their overpayments are returned. Uh, but at this point, we haven't seen much of a, I guess, a strong arm uh, collection activity happening from the federal government to bring back the rest of that money. Rachel Aiello, Senior Digital Parliamentary Reporter with CTV National News. We thank you for your time and we look forward to hearing from you uh, later today, the government's response on on this Auditor General's report. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk robots. They're not coming to a street near you if you live in Toronto, but they may already be on the street if you're elsewhere in the country. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeart Radio Talk Network. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. And in the next few minutes, we are going to talk robots. That's right. If earlier this fall you lived in Vancouver and you placed an order with Pizza Hut, it is very possible that that uh, double-double cheese pizza may have arrived without anyone in sight with the exception of a robot. Joining us to chat about that is Ali Kashani, who is the CEO of Serve Robotics. Welcome to News Talk today, Ali. Thanks for having me, Deb. So just tell us what you do at Serve Robotics. Let's just start with the very basics for those of us who live in Toronto and know that robots are not allowed on our street. Sounds good. Um, We make these little robots. They look like a shopping cart with eyes and personality. 
and they're currently operating in cities like Los Angeles and briefly in Vancouver to do last mile delivery. And what does that mean? So I order my uh, my takeout from my local restaurant and the restaurant delivers to you. The robot goes. How does it all work? That's right. Yeah. So actually, uh, the robot goes to the restaurant, picks up your dinner and brings it to you. Just like, um, you know, any other uh, delivery you get, you open an app, you place your order and the rest is pretty much the same. And they travel along our sidewalks, our streets, a combination uh, they are on the sidewalk for the most part, unless if they're crossing an intersection. Otherwise, they stay on the sidewalk. They move at a you know, fairly uh, normal like walking speed uh, to get to you. So they cover that last mile, mile and a half. And just talk to us a little bit. Again, we're going to focus on the actual robot itself for a few minutes here, Ali. Uh, yeah. But what safety features are built into them, or is that all part of the operator? Uh, no, it's actually, it, it has a lot of autonomy. It can uh, be safe by itself. It doesn't require people in the loop to stay safe. Uh, it has the most advanced sensors like uh, cameras and LIDARs and ultrasonics and anything you have in your car and beyond uh, sensors that are usually on self-driving cars. And uh, it has a lot of AI, a lot of intelligence. It can understand its environment and, and basically act by itself. So give us the upside. If I'm, if I'm a, uh, a local restaurateur and certainly post-COVID, I'm making a good amount of my money on delivery. On uh, What is the advantage of your robot to my business? There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of advantages here. For one, you get to reach more customers uh, because we can bring the cost of delivery down. We know that a lot of restaurants and local businesses are uh, concerned about uh, the cost of delivery today. Um, but it's, it's not just limited to that. Besides, uh, you know, improving that uh, local, uh, you know, the cost of delivery, we also help uh, declutter the roads. Uh, you can take uh, cars off the street. Uh, cars are causing all sorts of, um, you know, environmental issues. Uh, we have more real estate in our cities for cars than we have for humans. Uh, but you can actually have robots uh, remove the dependence we have on cars for this kind of last mile shopping, which, by the way, contributes about 2% of all CO2 in the world. It's, it's just we using uh, personal cars to buy groceries and, and food. So these vehicles, these robots are zero emission, is that correct? That's correct. They're electric, they charge overnight, and then they leave in the morning, they go to work basically in the city, and then they come back home at night and charge again. So you mentioned they operate in San Francisco. They were here earlier this fall in Vancouver. Where else are you finding uh, your robots are, uh, are being welcomed? If you visit Los Angeles, uh, we've been there for a number of years now, and there's quite a number of robots roaming around the city. They've been operating for some time. Uh, you can even find them on social media because uh, people uh, are often surprised to see them and post some really fun videos there. So is that the only major city, the only major locale that's using them? Um, so, yes, uh, right now our focus has been Los Angeles, but as you mentioned earlier, we uh, had a pilot with Pizza Hut in Vancouver, so we are going to be expanding to new cities next year. I'm speaking with Ali Kashani, who is the CEO of Serve Robotics, who has a, a fleet of robots that will do delivery. So I was thinking strictly takeout, but you are, you're actually doing grocery delivery as well, or that's, that's the proposal? That's right. We have other partners. Uh, 7-Eleven is one of our partners, for example. So it could be grocery, convenience goods, uh, and of course, food.
And what has the reaction been in Canada to municipalities? As I said a couple of times earlier, Toronto has banned them from our streets. Uh, have you had a, a welcoming reception uh, elsewhere? Uh, yeah, we try to always engage uh, both the uh, you know municipalities and the state or provincial level. Um, and we were told that um, you know there are no rules in the book right now for these robots, but we just made sure they are aware that we are doing the pilots and we would share the results with them. So it's a very collaborative effort. Again, cities usually like the idea of reducing dependence on cars. Uh, they like the safety of re- again reducing cars on the streets because these robots move a lot slower. They weigh a lot, a lot less, therefore they actually impose less uh, safety risk on other road users. So there's a lot of reasons to like these robots, but you have to be thoughtful. You have to engage cities in advance rather than just kind of roll them out and and, uh, see how they react. Yeah, I mean, I smiled at at a quote in um, in one of the articles that I I was reading to do my research, and it said, "Why move a two pound burrito in a two ton car?" Um, but right. but let's go to some of the safety features because I there's no doubt those people who are opposed to this in their community, and I'm I'm on the fence on this, by the way. Obviously, cite <laughs> safety concerns, and uh, first and foremost is for pedestrians. So so walk us through okay. why you think that's not a valid concern. Yeah, you know, the biggest safety risk for pedestrians are cars. A single car has 3,000 times more kinetic energy than one of our robots. So if anything, when you're advocating for safety, you want to have smaller things that are moving at a walking speed, uh, you know, around you rather than cars that any small, you know, accident with a car can be uh, serious. Versus with these robots, we've operated them for years now. We've done uh, tens of thousands of deliveries, and we have had no safety incidents uh, ever to occur because fundamentally these robots are not carrying the same kind of kinetic energy that a car would be carrying at any given time. But that doesn't mean that they haven't hit pedestrians, does it? Or animals? Uh, they, no, we, I mean, we go out of our way to make sure that they don't come into contact of course, when you're on a sidewalk, um, you know, there are all sorts of, um, you know, uh, situations where someone might actually jump in front of a robot to test its limits. We've seen that happen. Uh, I can tell you this with confidence. There has never been uh, a case where there was an injury or something uh, of that nature happening with robots, even despite people challenging them sometimes and, and that sort of thing. What, what do you mean they challenge them? Like oh, they... people like to test the limits of robots. They oh, like I to see. jump in front of them, see how they react. And you still haven't had a single accident? No. Uh, and so what is your plan to actually see this come uh, throughout the nation? Time frame. We are, yeah, we are, we are working with our partners, uh, which includes Uber, to uh, roll out robots to new cities. So next year, hope, we are hoping you're going to see them in a number of new markets. Vancouver is obviously high up in our list. We have a lot of folks uh, who work in Vancouver uh, on, on our engineering side. I myself am from Vancouver. I'm a UBC graduate. So uh, we, we are excited to actually bring them up north to Canada. All right. Ali Kashani, thank you, CEO of Serve Robotics. We look forward to the progress of your uh, company, and we thank you for your time. Coming up after the break, we are going to talk about new reports that say we have Chinese authorities operating police centers right here in this country. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Network.
Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. I'm with you for the next hour. And there's some alarming stories out of uh, out of Canada, but with regards to China. Yesterday, a human rights organization released a report called Patrol and Persuade. And they say they have found dozens of additional overseas Chinese police service centers around the world, including two more right here in Canada. Joining me on News Talk today to talk about what these centers do, what the goal is, and how pervasive they are throughout our country is Michelle Juno Katsua, who is the former chief of Asia-Pacific Desk for CSIS, Canada's spy agency. Welcome to News Talk today, Michelle. Always a pleasure, Deb. So, tell me what a Chinese police center is. What does it look like? How do we know? Just, just fill me in a little bit and our listeners in on what this is. Well, according to the ambassador, the Chinese ambassador, it's only a service point. According to CSIS, this is basically uh, a, a satellite for spying activities, for uh, foreign interference, for uh, basically bullying the community. Uh, it is obviously illegal because they never ask for any permission, and this is a contra- a contrary to any agreement, diplomatic agreement between countries. Uh, so this this is this is in, intended to simply uh, intimidate the community. Um, to show a presence uh, uh, that goes beyond Canadian law and uh, try to simply sort of uh, uh, demonstrate that uh, Beijing has uh, a hiring cloth on the Chinese community abroad. So, Michelle, I'm going to show my complete ignorance here. I mean, are we? What are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Is it set up in a business? Is it, uh, uh, you know, meant to be a um, a welcome center? What, like, physically, what does this look like? Or is it just a group of individuals that have been discovered uh, working on behalf of the Chinese government? Well, what we have found so far in the investigation is that these are seems to be sort of. A, a, uh, very uh, normal addresses. Uh, one place is, uh, is a, a corner store. Another place is a, a Chinese association. Another place seems to be simply uh, an office uh, without anybody inside. But the point being is that it's the message that is sent. Uh, we've known for quite a long time that the Chinese intelligence services and the Chinese consulate uh, officials in particular have been bullying surveying, uh, 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 doing, uh, uh, taking pictures, uh, uh, writing uh, 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 defamation uh, stories on uh, social media to try to quiet the uh, Chinese dissidents, the people opposed to the Chinese Communist go- government. Uh, this has been doing for, going for decades, but uh, in the last few years, it seems that there, there's been uh, an increased activities, which add to the other activities that we found, like the arrest of this Chinese spy in, in uh, um, Quebec, for, at Hydro-Quebec, trying to steal some information, or the uh, news also that there was some interference by a Chinese, an, an important Chinese association in, uh, in uh, Toronto, trying to recruit 11 candidates for the 2019 election in 13 um, uh, uh, office uh, workers of these uh, these candidates. So we're, we're, we're talking here severe uh, and very serious spy activities and, and, and foreign interference activities from the Chinese government in Canada to try to interfere with our um, 
election and our uh, uh, democratic process, but also trying again, like I said, to intimidate and to bully uh, the uh, community. So 54 of these so-called police stations were revealed in September. With yesterday's report, they're looking at 102 centers in 53 countries. Here in Canada, uh, we're talking largely the GTA in Vancouver. Is that correct? Correct. For the moment, yes, that's what we have found. I wouldn't be surprised if we could find something similar in Calgary and Montreal as well, where we have two other uh, very important Chinese communities as well. And I understand these are sort of a, a relatively new phenomena, perhaps as, as recent as 2016? True, true, exactly. It seems to have started when uh, the Chinese government offered to the French government in France to send some police officer to assist when Chinese tourists were uh, assaulted or, or, or victim of a crime in Paris, in France. So uh, the... Uh, the authorities sort of accepted their, 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 their temporary help at that time. But I think the Chinese sort of developed the idea that it would be good to be able to open those kind of assistance, quote-unquote, everywhere. The problem is, is that they're not asking for permission, and we know exactly what they're doing it and why they're doing it, which is to intimidate the, 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 the community. So it is the responsibility of the Canadian government to try to protect. The challenge that we are currently facing is that, unfortunately, the Canadian law, and particularly the criminal code, is ill-equipped to be capable to deal with this kind of foreign interference. So definitely it calls on the government to adopt as soon as possible uh, a, a foreign interference law, just like Australia has done, because they have suffered exactly the same kind of fate. So they uh, adopted a few years ago uh, the foreign interference law, which could, use, could be used as a model for Canada as well. I'm speaking with Michel Junot Katsua, who is a former chief of the Asia Pacific Desk for CSIS, about some alarming information coming out over the last, this particular report yesterday, but over the last few months, about what is really an escalation of foreign interference uh, in our country, particularly China. But there's also a sense, too, I know that um, CSIS is sounding the alarm bells around Russia as well. You're right. Russia and Iran are, are two countries in particular, but they're not the only one. We've seen exactly the same thing coming from Saudi Arabia. Recently, there were reports coming from a country like even Rwanda. So uh, foreign interference is practiced by civil, uh, several uh, authoritarian uh, regimes. Uh, they try to sort of uh, influence the community, but they try to interfere also with our democratic process. They try to interfere as well as planting agent of influence within the government. And that's one another element that we've identified as well, that at all government level, municipal, provincial, and uh, federal, and particularly in Toronto, there was a lot of agent of influence. People literally are uh, receiving money or, or, or favor from China for services rendered. So at the end of the day, those elected officials, you ask the question, who are you really serving, your country or somebody else? And uh, CSIS has indicated that there's been an alarming escalation post-pandemic. Is there a reason for that timing or is it just where we are in, in world history? I think it's, it's basically uh, uh, where we are in world history <clears throat> and where we are currently with the regime in uh, 
in, in, in China. Let's remember that Xi Jinping, the new leader, not the new, but this is third time he re, re, reinstated as a supreme leader of uh, China. And uh, he has been known to be extremely authoritarian, very close to what uh, Mao Zedong used to be. So in that, perspective, in that perspective, we've seen a greater effort from uh, uh, China to sort of uh, steal information, uh, uh, try to sort of intimidate people abroad and influence countries in their favor. And you mentioned uh, legislation that helps deal domestically with uh, this international interference similar to Australia. So just give us a, a quick sense of what that would look like if the federal government were to bring it forward. So basically a law like the foreign interference law would be capable to uh, distinctively identify some of the behavior action that would be uh, uh, opposed to uh, the well-being of our citizens or the well-being of our society. Uh, the uh, law would also identify the punishment that would come along with and the sanction that would come along for people found guilty of, of such a thing. Because many of the people who are uh, influencing and, and trying to do those kind of actions are, are actually uh, sort of, quote-unquote, normal citizens, if I may say. But there's also diplomats. Now, with the diplomats, it's a little bit easier. When we found that the diplomat is acting uh, the wrong way, we can simply ask this diplomat to leave immediately and, and because it goes against the uh, uh, agreement of the, their, their, their duty and their behavior in the foreign country. Michelle Junot-Katsua, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for your time. We do okay. have to take a break, <laughs> okay. uh, but fascinating stuff, and we hope to have you back again. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host for News Talk Today, Deb Hutton, with you until 2 o'clock this afternoon. For the first time in three years, Northern Canadian Rangers are gathering to provide updates on their communities and set objectives for the coming year. So that makes me ask, what is a Canadian Ranger and what do they do? Joining me to fill me in and hopefully our listeners as well, Whitney Lackenbauer, a Canada Research Chair at Trent University and an Honorary Lieutenant Colonel for 1st Canadian Ranger Patrol Group. Welcome to News Talk today. Great to be on the show, Dev, and certainly help I can inform uh, <laughs> Canadians about the Canadian Rangers, uh, a group, an organization of Canadians of which I have deep, deep-seated passion and interest. Well, I can't wait then. So just give us the 101. Canadian Rangers, who are they? The Northern Rangers, what do they do? What do we need them for? Excellent. So actually, the Canadian Rangers are ce celebrating this year their 75th anniversary. So they were created as a subcomponent of the Canadian Armed Forces Reserves way back in 1947. And the idea was the Canadian North and isolated coastal regions are incredibly vast, so vast that it's unrealistic to think that we would have regular forces or primary reservists keeping watch over those isolated parts of our country. So instead, we turned to members of communities in remote and isolated places to basically serve in the military with a really unique form of service and a very different form of training and expectation than exists for the rest of the Canadian Armed Forces. So paramilitary, volunteer. 
Yeah, no, not paramilitary. They are an, a formal subcomponent of the reserves. Okay. So they are full-on military, but unlike any other component of our military, in that rangers are considered to be trained upon enrollment. So what that means is it's understood that as residents of remote communities, people who join the Canadian Rangers already have a lifetime of experiences behind them, often as people familiar with the outdoors, familiar with the kind of pursuits that one takes on the lands and waters, which make them very good eyes and ears for the Canadian Armed Forces. It also means that they're unique in that they actually elect their own local leadership. So in other parts of the military, certainly leadership is appointed from outside. In the case of the Canadian Rangers, they actually have a sort of self-determination at a local level to decide who's the best fit to lead their community-based patrol. And so where, where do we find these throughout Canada's north? Like, Are there, are there little... Um like uh, individual troops that would happen? Are there just individual people that are part of a, of a loose-knit group? I mean, you talked about them electing their own leadership. What, what does it look like? Where are, where are they? What are the communities that they serve? Yeah, wonderful question. So it's actually community-based. So if we think about uh, Canada's three northern territories, for example, rangers, uh, somewhere between 1,500 and 1,800 of them serve in 63 communities, and 61 individual patrols. So in a couple of cases, the patrol will span two communities. But for the most part, each community has its own distinct ranger patrol, generally on paper up to about 30 members. So within that patrol, then, you'll have a series of people who live year-round, so they represent a permanent military presence in communities all across the Arctic, and from those communities, they'll often go out in the land and do patrolling as well, because who better than somebody who lives in a region year-round to know whether something strange or unusual is happening, or to just keep their finger on the pulse of what the military needs to know in our remote, remote areas. So is it an adequate approach to our northern security? It's a big question, right? We're reading a lot these days in light of, of Russia's brutal further invasion of Ukraine, last February, about threats to North America. And I'd say a lot of the threats to North America are not actually targeting our Arctic. These are threats that may pass through the Arctic to strike at other parts of North America. And we really are thinking about continental defense. When it comes to the actual threats facing our Arctic, particularly, we see the Rangers as a really essential part of a whole system of defenses that we actually have in place. So the threat environment today is not one in which it's very likely for, say, Russian paratroopers to come and try to take over a northern community. But if there was some sort of incident where a foreign military actor came in and invaded any part of Canada, we have troops down south who could go deploy up north. They could be sent up north and respond. And who would they turn to to be their guides and subject matter experts? Well, of course, the Canadian Rangers, because they know their homeland so intimately. So in essence, the Canadian Rangers are just part of Canada's defenses in the Arctic, which consists of Navy assets, they consist of our our Air Force, and then other southern-based Army units who can be sent up north if needed. And once there, the Rangers are their eyes and ears. They're their guides. They're their experts. So so that sounds somewhat adequate in, in it, I'll call it a gateway approach to our security. 
And yet I know there have been calls for uh, greater resources and a greater level of, of professional training for our northern rangers. Yes, yeah, so this has been an ongoing discussion. The big question becomes, you know, against what threat? And I think we do see some emerging threats in our north, some of which have a, a strong military dimension to them, some of which, if we're thinking about environmental security or the need for humanitarian assistance, having an organized group of Canadians living in the area who do have military training allows us to have first responders there on the ground. And, and rangers also perform this task. But what I think is really important is that we're thinking of, when we're thinking about ways of enhancing the training of the rangers, it's not to, to think that somehow they're obsolete at age 75. Quite the opposite. I think they're more relevant than ever. The need to have eyes, ears, and voices throughout the North is as important today as it's ever been, and arguably most more so given the nature of, of some of the threats that we're already seeing in Canadian society, from the information domain to subversive activities. So having the rangers there as a permanent presence is, is really significant in ways that we can increasingly support them and augment their training as well with more specialized skills is something that will very much be welcomed. I'm speaking with Whitney Lackenbauer, who is a Canada Research Chair at Trent University and an Honorary Lieutenant Colonel for First Canadian Ranger Patrol Group, and obviously very passionate about our Northern Rangers, and something, as I said off the top, I was completely unfamiliar with. Do we also find them in our Northern provinces or strictly in the territories, Whitney? Yeah, great question, Deb. So they do exist across the provincial north as well, including in Northern Ontario, a Third Canadian Ranger Patrol Group across the Prairie Provinces and in British Columbia, in 4th Canadian Ranger Patrol Group, in Northern Quebec, uh, both in, in Cree Nation Territory, in Nunavik, so the Inuit um, area of Northern Quebec, in 2CRPG, 2 Canadian Ranger Patrol Group, and then also in Newfoundland Labrador, in 5th Canadian Ranger Patrol Group. So they truly are a national formation, and it's telling that a lot of the political announcements around the Canadian Rangers sort of focus on what they present in terms of Arctic capabilities, but they truly are best seen as a northern capability all across Canada and also ways for Canadians in isolated coastal communities along the Atlantic and Pacific coastlines to be able to serve. Now, do you find that there are those who, who would move into the north to do this, or is this generally people who have lived there their whole lives and have chosen this as a way to give back to their community? Yeah, great question. It really is a mix, but for the most part, and it's, it's going to depend upon the individual community and the amount of transient population versus people who are born and raised and continue to live there, um, but really a, a lot of the rangers, they're so reflective of the beautiful diversity of our isolated communities. So it means that it is the component of the Canadian forces that has the highest rates of Indigenous peoples participating, for example. So in communities that are predominantly Inuit or predominantly First Nations, you'll see that the Ranger Patrol is usually representative of the demographics of the population in that particular community. Also, it's the element of the Canadian Armed Forces that has the highest rate of female participation. Not quite according to the latest statistics at that 25% goal that's been set for the Canadian Armed Forces as a whole, but upwards of 24%. So it is actually a highly representative organization when it comes to the, the nature of Canadians living in remote areas, 
And from that standpoint, you know, it really represents a mix of people of all age groups. There's no mandatory retirement age. So certainly Rangers have served well into their 90s on occasion. Whitney Latin-Guevara, I'm going to have to let you go. Thanks so much for this tutorial. I learned a lot. You're listening to News Talk today. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I am your host, Deb Hutton. I'm sorry I'm having a technical issue with my headset, uh, but we're all good, Tony? Okay, so there is an amazing story out of the United States it was November 23rd, just a week or two ago, the eve of American Thanksgiving. A 28-year-old man and 18 of his family members were celebrating aboard the carnival ship Valor. He told his sister he was going to the washroom, and that was the last that was seen of him for some time. Joining us to tell us his story. Oh, we do not have him, Tony. All right. We will hopefully have him soon. I'll, I'll fill you in a little bit further on his story. This individual, his name is uh, James Michael Grimes. He says he's not a great swimmer. He doesn't uh, even usually float. And yet he spent somewhere between 15 and 20 hours treading water before he was rescued the day before American Thanksgiving. He was uh, told that if it had been just a little bit longer after he was rescued, he was unlikely to have still survived. He took off his socks, he waved to a tanker ship, and eventually, uh, after he was reported missing by his sister, as I said, a helicopter was sent and he survived. He's been telling his story as unbelievable as it is, and we were hoping he would join us this afternoon to be able to tell his story to our listeners on News Talk 1010. I'm going to open up the phone lines and ask, have you had something like this happen to you? Some amazing story where you wonder if you've ever been supposed to survive something as strange as this. I have to say, I've been pretty lucky in my life. There have been a few close calls, most likely probably something as as simple uh, as a uh, uh, an accident that just was one of those flukes, but never something like this. 1-855-633-1010. Hopefully we will get our guest on the line. Let's maybe move on, Tony, to uh, another topic. Oh, we have him. Well, we're going to move on to another topic. Apologies, folks. So usually what happens in the last segment of the show, but we'll do it here instead, is we try to lighten things up, engage our listeners in something fun, get away from the heavy news of the day. And there was a story that caught our producer's eye this week, and it was about an individual who's got quite a following on TikTok talking about how often he washes his clothes. So our question to you, one 1010 are there items of your clothing that you rarely wash? Are there items of your clothing that you wash all the time? 1-855-633-1010. 
Is this a weird habit that you have? I will tell you, I have two girls, eight and 15, and I feel like I do wash for a family of 10. Every time a piece of clothing goes on, it goes into the laundry basket as soon as it comes off. It doesn't matter if it was worn for half an hour. It doesn't matter if it was worn for an entire day. It doesn't matter if they spilled. It goes in the laundry basket. And then once it's in the laundry basket, next to things that are legitimately dirty, it's now dirty. And there's no way that you can not wash it. 1-855-633-1010. I was speaking to my girlfriend about this earlier today, asking if, if she has any weird things in her house. And she says one of the things that she does is she washes everything the minute it comes home from the store before she wears it. Now, it's funny. I do that for my kids, but I don't do it for myself. I can't wait to put something new on. And I just take the labels off. I take the tickets off and I put it on. 1-855-633-1010. Do you have strange washing habits that you are free to admit on News Talk today is something you just don't wash? Jeans, apparently, is one of the most controversial subjects when it comes to laundry. Some people don't like to wash their jeans. It say, they say that it takes the crispness out of those jeans and they never look the same after. I will say I'm probably somewhere in the middle on things like jeans. I do think, unless you spill, unless you've been out in the mud, that you can actually wear them more than once. But it really depends on the situation. And to a certain extent, it probably depends on the season. Is it hot and sweaty? Are you out doing an activity? Tony, what about you? Oh, well, for me, um, usually it's uh, my bed sheets because I have about six sets of them. So I'll just throw them in the hamper. And then like once every six weeks or so, I will, I will, uh, I will wash them up. So You only wash your bed sheets once every six weeks? Yeah, because I've got six different sets. So I change them. Oh, I see. You yeah. do change them, though. I do change them at least once a week. And then uh, they all go into a hamper. And when I'm out, that's when I uh, do my laundry. And by the way, we do have our guest. Oh, Tony, words to uh, that I was waiting to hear. So joining us, we're, I, my apologies, our friends. We are back, back and forth a little bit, um, but we will now go to James Michael Grimes, the 28-year-old individual who fell off a cruise ship into the Gulf of Mexico late last month and survived 15 to 20 hours treading water and floating. James, welcome to News Talk today. Hey, how are you? Well, we're doing okay now that we've got you. So tell us your story. What happened November 23rd aboard the Carnival Sky Valor cruise ship? Well, uh, it started out an average day. We got on the boat. You know, uh, we couldn't go to our cabin, so we were just hanging out by the pool. And then we went to dinner that night with my family. And after dinner, we went... Uh, to watch some live music. And then it seemed like from that point on, let, the next thing I can remember was regaining consciousness and being in the water with the boat was out of sight. So I'm sure our listeners are asking, was there drugs or alcohol involved? Um, no drugs. I mean, I drank two or three beer. Who, who doesn't go on a cruise and don't drink a few beer or something, you know? But no, I wasn't belligerent, drunk, or nothing like that. No. 
And so do you remember getting you, you the story said that you said to your sister, I'm going to go to the washroom. Do you remember that? Yes. And yes. then and then what happened next? Like I said, I, it's still a mystery to me. I pretty much I don't know if it was the fall, it knocked me unconscious, gave me a concussion or something. But I pretty much the next thing I remember is waking up and being in the water. Now, were there security cameras? Has, has the uh, cruise line helped you out with this sort of missing few minutes? Uh, actually, not not really. And there wasn't, on where I was, there's no security cameras uh, on the outside balconies. And no one, obviously no one was there to see me go overboard. So I don't know how it happened or, you know, it's still a mystery to me. Okay, so then you wake up, you are in the Gulf of Mexico. Start there. What do you remember? Uh, you know, first thing I thought was, wow, this is real. You know, I'm actually in the water. It was pitch black other than the stars, and and I can remember seeing one light, which seemed like it was miles from me. And uh, at first I thought that was a ship or the ship. I wasn't sure, but that was the only thing out there I could see, so... I started swimming towards it. Well, I took off all my clothes because they were weighing me down to nothing but my boxers and socks. Uh, and I started swimming towards that light. And so, was it the cruise ship? <laughs> well, I actually swam the rest of that night because they say I went overboard maybe 12, 11 to 12 o'clock. So I swam from then until the sun came up towards that uh, light. And when the sun came up, I was maybe... Five, six hundred yards from it, I could see it was actually an oil rigging platform. Okay, so that's a good place for us to take a quick break. Uh, we are speaking with James Michael Grimes, who fell off a cruise ship uh, the eve of American Thanksgiving. James, just hang on tight. We're going to go to a quick traffic break, and we will be back to hear the rest of your story. All right. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. A story has been making the rounds on the uh, the talk shows and the radio shows of the United States. It is about an 28-year-old uh, man who, on the eve of American Thanksgiving, November 23rd, was on the deck of the Carnival Sky cruise ship named Valor with 18 of his family members getting ready to celebrate American Thanksgiving when he fell overboard. He has no recollection of how he got into the water, but that's where he woke up and spent the next somewhere between 15 and 20 hours floating and swimming. Joining us to talk about his experience is James Michael Grimes. James, welcome back to News Talk today. We had just started hearing from you about what was happening, and you said that you were in the darkness heading towards what turned out to be an oil tanker platform when the sun right. was coming up. Let's let's pick it up from there and tell us your experience. So, yeah, I was swimming towards that, and uh, the sun actually started to come up. And when the sun did come up, you know, I actually stopped swimming forward for a minute and thought, you know, this was a bucket list of 
my family's while we're all on the cruise we were going to go out on the top deck and watch the sunrise so i just kind of stopped right there for a minute and for 10 15 minutes i just kind of floated around right there and watched the sun come up and thought you know hey i couldn't get a better view of it but <laughs> that that's true <laughs> but uh yeah the sun came up and i realized i was swimming towards the Oregon platform and i tried swimming towards it i maybe got 500 yards from it but it seemed like when the sun came up the the waves got a lot bigger and the current was pushing just directly against me the tide and so i don't know i swam towards it with the sun up two to three more hours and it seemed like i wasn't moving anywhere and i realized if i stopped swimming forward and just kind of kept myself afloat i was getting further and further away from it so so at that time but you're you're not you're not a natural swimmer like this isn't this is like none of us i don't think unless you're you're competitive could swim for two or three hours how did you no. how did you manage that uh, i just i just tried to stay positive and I, I the lord was out there with me helping me stay afloat because my, my me myself i can't float trying to swim in a a swimming pool you know if i try to lay on my back and float i go straight to the bottom and I tried it out there, and it was even worse. The waves were crashing over me. Uh, so, and, and did you have did anything, swim. anything at all, to hang on to or to to help you rest? No, ma'am. No. So you you either swam or you floated for what appears to be in excess of fifteen hours. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I believe it was more like twenty hours. Because that was 15 from the time they reported me missing the next morning. And you think you were out there for some time before they realized that? Yes, ma'am. Now, I, yes. I read uh, in, in one of the reports, uh, because I know you've been speaking to a number of media outlets in the last few days, that you did have an encounter with some sea animals as well. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I went through schools of jellyfish, two different schools of jellyfish, there was always a bunch of small fish, you know, staying around me. And there was something out there. I'm not going to say it was a shark, but it did have a fin and it stuck up. And I seen it 10 to 15 yards from me. And um, it was probably three to four foot. And it's like when I seen it, I instantly put, you know, my front towards it started backpedaling away from it. And I was going underwater because my eyes had pretty much got adjusted out there to the salt water. And, uh, and I, it's like I went under and I could see it, you know, at a distance from me. It's like when I came back up and went back under again, it was right there at me. And it actually bumped one of my legs and I kicked it. And and then it got on pretty quick. But, you know, other than that, that was, you know, the, the jellyfish in that one incident. And there were seagulls. They kept flying around me, hovering around me. But other than that, that was all the marine life I've seen out there. Now, I also read somewhere that you, you attempted to eat a stick. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So I was, I'd been out there the night and the full day, and it had actually was getting dark again. And I seen it was floating, you know, probably five foot from me, just bobbing up and down. And so I got it, and it, it seemed like it looked like it was bamboo. I don't think it was, but it was probably a foot and a half long, and I just wanted some type of taste in my mouth. You know, because it, it was nothing but salt water is all I'd been tasting. And um, so, yeah, I actually started chewing on the stick, and I pretty much ate the whole thing. 
I was thinking maybe it could give me some type of nutrients or just something, some type of flavor in my mouth. So you said you, you, you know, you, you believe you survived because you, you stayed positive, but there must have been many moments going through your mind that you thought you were not going to get out of this situation. Uh, actually, not really. It, it, to me, it seemed like it wasn't a matter of if I get out, it's just when, you know, I, I was hoped I would be found, but I just, I didn't want to get in that state of depression or, you know, thinking, Hey, I'm going to die out here. You know, I, I knew it wouldn't help if I did. If you change, you know, the, a bad attitude changed my mood and I instantly, you know, would weaken my will, I believe. So I just try to stay focused on, you know, keeping my mind off what I was actually at stake and just trying to, you know, stay positive, like singing songs to myself. Uh, I was out there singing at the top of my lungs. Did you have a favorite singing. song or a favorite artist? Uh, well, I was kind of just making up words to songs, but I was <laughs> they were songs, but I was just making up my own words, like the song Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Yeah. <laughs> Except that I was, it was more like, I wish I was sitting on the dock <laughs> of the bay, but the tide's just pushing me away, you know, stuff like that. I'm speaking with uh, James Michael Grimes, who fell overboard a cruise ship in the Gulf of Mexico late November. He spent, uh, he feels, closer to 20 hours in the water without any uh, device whatsoever. Uh, you, you had no tracking device. You had nothing to help you out there until he was eventually rescued. I'm struggling with, with how you physically did this, James. Like, I just, I think of swimming a few laps. I think of being out in the sun in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, physically, what kind of shape were you in when you were rescued? Uh, well, I didn't realize it at the time. When, when I actually got up in the helicopter and sat down, when I, once we got to the hospital and I tried to stand back up, I was so weak that I couldn't stand up. You know, I stayed in um, ICU for the next four days just trying to regain my strength and for some of the bruising. You know, bruising pretty, and, and presumably dehydration and, and exhaustion. And uh, they said I started experiencing hypothermia, too. I bet. James Michael Grimes, we thank you for your time. We um, are happy that you are safe and and hopefully healthy after your experience uh, I, I i truly am in awe that you were able to do this so thank you for sharing our story your story with us yes ma'am uh, i'd like to add something sure i'd also set up a gofundme page you can google james grimes gofundme it's for medical expenses i don't have insurance and those five days in icu you know it's going to take me a lifetime to get those paid off James Michael Grimes, we appreciate it. Take care of yourself. This has been News Talk Today. Quite an interesting last half hour. I'm Deb Hutton. I'll see you tomorrow at noon.